Thank you, choir, orchestra, Kyle. Hadn't heard that before. You did a great job. Thank you. Well, we are oftentimes admonished today to be tolerant of others, their beliefs, and their ideas. The NFL has told us that we are to be tolerant and understanding of those who do not stand for the national anthem, saying that that is an expression of freedom, and certainly we would agree with that. We believe that freedom is very important, especially as Christians, because if you can lose your freedom, then I can lose my freedom. So freedom is very important. We understand that. I think the problem many of us have with the idea of tolerance in our society today is that it seems to be somewhat selective in what we tolerate. We tolerate what I agree with, we tolerate what I believe, but if it does not line up with that, then we are not quite as tolerant. For instance, the NFL says that we are to be tolerant here, but I do not remember them taking that same approach in 2012 when Tim Tebow was kneeling in prayer before the game. I'm not saying that they didn't, I'm just saying that I don't remember them taking that same position of tolerance. Or in 2013 when they fined Brandon Marshall for wearing green cleats to draw awareness to mental health disorders. Or in 2015 when D'Angelo Williams was wearing a patch that said find the cure for breast cancer awareness, or 2016 when they rejected the Dallas Cowboys wearing decals honoring five police officers who were killed. We talk about tolerance. We are to be tolerant, but it seems to me that it is somewhat selective what we tolerate. There are those who believe that God has become more tolerant as time has gone by. We understand that also. That God perhaps is more tolerant, especially when we see the contrast between what the Old Testament teaches us and what we believe today. Recently, I just, just finished reading through the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 2, it says, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. That's speaking of idolatry. And it says in the Old Testament that if anyone is involved in idolatry, that person is to be put to death. Well, today we are told that oh, all gods are acceptable. They are to be honored. They are to be respected and so forth. But it is a different standard, it looks like, when we read the Old Testament and see where we are today. Leviticus chapter 20 verse number 9 says, If there is anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. Now that speaks of a disobedient child, seems a little severe. If a child becomes disobedient to their parent, then that child is to be put to death. Well, if you engage in corporal punishment of your child today, you might end up in jail. So there is quite a contrast in standards concerning that. Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And so it says if there is adultery, that person is to be put to death. That is in the Old Testament. Today it is rather common, it seems. 
And then it says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. So it says if someone engages in homosexuality, that person is to be put to death. And yet today we pass laws to make it a legal position. So that, that brings up questions about God. See, when we read in the Old Testament what it says, and then we look at where we are today, that brings up questions about God. Has God become more tolerant? I mean, I'm more tolerant as a grandfather than I was as a father. So maybe God has become more tolerant as time has gone by. He has become more tolerant or perhaps his standards have changed. The standards of God are not the same as they once were. Well, that leads us to two possible conclusions. We can conclude that God has changed. Bill Moyers did a program on PBS TV titled Genesis, A Living Conversation, on one of the programs, they were discussing the issue of the flood. And as they discussed the issue of the flood, the consensus of those being interviewed was that God had sent the flood, destroying the world, and then he regretted what he had done. He hung a rainbow in the sky to say, I will never do it again, that God has changed. Or we can conclude that God interacts with people differently at different times. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse number 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Going back to the consideration of the questions that I have posed earlier, the first thing I would say is that God is unchanged. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 8, Scripture says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Ladies and gentlemen, there is not a God of the Old Testament and a different God of the New Testament. His nature is unchanged. His essence is unchanged. He doesn't get older as time passes by because he is not affected by time. The Bible says in Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He does not age with time. 
His power does not change with time. It is not diminished as time goes by, nor does he gain new powers as time goes by because he is omnipotent. God does not grow wiser as time passes because he is omniscient. His nature does not change. His character does not change. A.W. Pink wrote, He cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. So when we're talking about God and asking the question, God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His nature has not changed. Thus, his truth has not changed. I know that today we live at a time when truth has become subjective, that each person decides for oneself what is true. Therefore, what is true for you may not be for me, and what is true for me may not be for you because truth is subjective in reality. Truth is objective and independent. It is independent of me. It is independent of you. So God's truth then is changeless. It does not change. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. His truth is changeless and eternal. Psalm 119, 89 and 90, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you establish them to last forever. All right? So if God then remains unchanged, his truth remains unchanged, then I think we can conclude that his standards remain unchanged as well. If God does not change, then his standards do not change. God has stated his standard in general terms in the Ten Commandments. We know what they are. God has given the Ten Commandments. He's given them to man. He gave them to Moses. So he has stated what his standard is. When God states his standard, then they do not change. For instance, salvation. What is his standard for salvation? It's faith, right? We are to have faith in God. Well then, how was a person in the Old Testament saved? If we are to have faith in Jesus Christ, how was a person in the Old Testament saved? They were saved by faith. You see, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah in faith, while we look back to the fact that the Messiah has come in faith. So Abraham then was saved by faith. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4 verse 3, For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, that is faith, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The word reckon is a bookkeeping term. It means that it was placed in his account as righteousness. So Abraham then believed God. He had faith in God. He was saved through faith. How are we saved? Through faith. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the, the standard is the same. Whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are saved by faith. The standard of God is holiness. In the Old Testament, he said, be ye holy. In the New Testament, he said, be ye holy. So God is unchanged. His nature is unchanged. His truth is unchanged. And his standards are unchanged. Now, having said that, the way that God deals with man does change. When my children were little, I used to spank them to discipline them. I didn't beat them. And I probably shouldn't even say that I spanked them, but I did. Now, when they got to be about 10 years old, I stopped spanking them. And I took privileges away from them. Point is, my standard did not change, but my method of dealing with them did. My standard was the same, but I dealt with them differently. In our text, we draw three contrasts that reveal the changing methods of God. He mentions two mountains, Sinai and Calvary. Now, Sinai was a mountain of separation. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain. This is speaking of Sinai. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Verse number 20. For, e for they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. The Mount Sinai was a mountain of separation. You recall that Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, and there he received the Ten Commandments. But God said to Moses, Moses, instruct the people that they are not to touch the mountain. They do not come to the mountain. They stay away from the mountain. Can't touch it. Because that symbolized the distance between the morality of the people and the morality of God. So at Sinai, it was a mountain of separation. Tell the people not to come here. They cannot come or touch it. The other mountain is Calvary. And there's an invitation, verse 22. But you, you didn't come to Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Mount Sinai said, stay away. Mount Calvary says, come. He says, you've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Through Calvary we become citizens of heaven, children of God. One commentator wrote, it is true that Christians have not yet seen that city by the bodily eye, but they look to it with the eye of faith. It is revealed to them. So at Calvary, we are instructed to come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the kingdom of God. We're invited to come. And then he said, myriad of angels. Barnes wrote, the writer intends doubtless to contrast that joyful assemblage of the angels in heaven with those who appeared in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the trumpets of judgment blew. Mount Calvary, the trumpets of celebration blew. 
celebrating the victory of Jesus. He said, so you've come. Come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Come to the angels, the myriads of angels. And then in verse number 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Barnes wrote, the meaning is that by becoming Christians, we are in fact identified with that happy and honored church. What he says is that you are invited to come to the church of the firstborn. Now that's not Baptist, that's not Methodist, that's not Presbyterian. Church of the firstborn, that is the church, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what brand you wear, you come to the church of God. See, that's what he's saying. We come to the church of the firstborn. We come to the church of God. And there God is the judge. Verse number 23 continues, and to God the judge of all. We are invited to come before Almighty God. Commentator said the thought that seems to have struck his mind in regard to God was that he would do right to all. If righteousness is going to prevail, ladies and gentlemen, it is going to come from God. So he has invited us to come to the God of justice. And then he goes on in verse 23 and says, and the spirits of the righteous. You know what that means? That means those who in faith have gone before us and are now in heaven. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, your husband, your wife, your child, those who have gone on to heaven before us, he's inviting us to join with them. Come to them, the spirits of the righteous. And then in verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is the one who opens the door. So he says that you are invited to come and we come through Jesus because it is Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the Bible says. So if we are going to come, we're going to come through Jesus because he is the one who opens the door. So there are two mountains, Sinai, Calvary. There are two covenants, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, if there's a new covenant, that means there was an old covenant, right? If we have a new covenant, then there was an old covenant. So, what were the characteristics of the old covenant? Well, it was national. When God made the old covenant, it was with a nation. He made a covenant with Israel. It was a national covenant and restrictive. When the covenant was violated, the nation suffered. You, you might recall in the Old Testament the story of David numbering Israel. God told him not to do it. He said, no, you see, you're, you're not supposed to number Israel, but he did anyway. And because he did what God had forbidden, God said, now I'm going to give you the choice as to the punishment. He said, there will be three years of famine or three months of being defeated by your enemy or three days of my judgment. Point being, though, that the covenant was a national covenant. It was made with Israel 
When it was violated, then the nation suffered. It was a national covenant. Well, what about the new covenant? What are the characteristics of the new covenant? The new covenant does not deal with nations. It deals with individuals. The old covenant dealt with nations. The new covenant deals with individuals. It deals with you. As individuals, we are to live godly lives under an ungodly government. That's what Jesus was saying when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Now, folks, according to what the scripture says, we are to submit to the government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So the Bible says then that we live under an ungodly government, but we are to be submissive to that. So how do we change it? How, how then do we change it? Well, as Christians, our agenda is not to take over the nation politically, but to transform it through the transformation of individuals. That is um, calls to question the issue of salt and light, that you are to be salt and you are to be light. I think that Christians are to be involved in the political process. I think that you should be involved in the political process. But understand we are not going to transform our world, our country, through Republicans or through Democrats. We transform our world by bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, which is the one thing we neglect more than anything else. If we're going to change this world, we will do so as we bring people to faith in Christ. And those individuals then become salt and light in a corrupt world. Then there are two judgments mentioned. There's a physical judgment, verse number 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now that speaks of the physical judgment that took place at Mount Sinai. Those who violated the command were judged. But then there is an eternal judgment, verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying it once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as I've created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Folks, there was a physical judgment at Mount Sinai, and there is an eternal judgment or a spiritual judgment that is coming. You ever wonder, why doesn't God just zap this world? And, because if I were God, that's what I would do. 
If I were God in charge and I see all of the ungodliness in this world, I think I would just wipe it out and you probably would too. Well, what you need to understand is that there is an eternal judgment that is coming. But there are three principles we learn from that. First, greater grace means a greater judgment. The greater the grace, the greater the judgment. The Bible says in Romans 2, 5, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We have to understand in this eternal judgment that greater grace means a greater judgment. Secondly, that seeming silence does not mean indifference. We think that God must be indifferent because God is silent concerning these things. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Third principle we learn from this is that justice delayed is not justice denied. We're not getting away with our sin. We may think we are. We may think that we have escaped, but we are not getting away with our sin. There are two judgments the physical and the eternal. Now I conclude, we begin at Sinai. And there God's standard is holiness. He gave the Ten Commandments. So we begin at Sinai. The law was given. God gave the law to Moses. The law points out our failure, and that's important. The reason for the law is to point out that we don't measure up, that we have failed. Paul said, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. That's what the law does. That's its job. That's what it's supposed to do. The law points out our failure, that we do not measure up. I've said before, you know, have you ever been stopped by a highway patrol and congratulated for going the speed limit? No. That's not what the law does. The law stops and says you were not going the speed limit. So that's what law does. It points out our failure. So God's standard is holiness. It is righteousness. He gave the law to point out to us that we don't measure up. And so that leads us then from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. We come to Mount, Cal uh, Mount Sinai, we don't measure up. That brings us to Calvary where our sin was paid. The wages of sin is death. There are wages to sin. They have to be paid. Jesus paid for them on the cross. And salvation is offered to us there. It is at Mount Calvary where Jesus paid for our sin that he offers to us the gift of eternal life. So Mount Sinai reveals our sinfulness 
Mount Calvary reveals God's grace. Have you ever been to Mount Calvary? Have you come to the cross where Jesus died to pay for our sin that we might be forgiven? That's why he died. Our Father in God, I come to you at this time and I ask, Lord, that you search our hearts. I pray, Father, for those who have never come to Calvary, never come to the cross, to confess sin, to be forgiven, that today they would. Lord, I just pray that you would show us what you see when you look at us. And Father, for those who need to make decisions, that today they would. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. Choir will sing a hymn of invitation. Staff will be here to receive you. If you've never trusted Christ, would you come receive him today? If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Hope you'll come. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come, I greet you as you do. Our fall festival is today at five o'clock and uh, be praying about that. You know, they say that it's gonna be windy this afternoon and, and uh, so just, well, they're trying to set it up, you know, some of it over in 1420 Sumter and they're trying to work it all out because it's such a, an important and a, a wonderful time for us to bring the children, let them have a good time. So be praying for that and uh, be praying for Chad. He said that he had prayed it wouldn't rain, but he said, I didn't pray it wouldn't be windy. And so uh, he should have been more thoughtful in his prayer, but that's what he did. So uh, just be praying for it and we look forward to seeing you at five o'clock today. Let me say a, a personal word, I guess, to you for a moment. And I, I do, I feel that, you know, that we are a family and, and I love you and thank God for you and, and, I, and, and I've just been encouraged by you. 
we, we're in a challenging time, and you know that. We, we're going through a challenging time, and so many of you said that I'm praying for you and so forth. I was talking to my son this week, Eric, and he said, Dad, I don't know another church that could go through what y'all are going through and survive. And I said, Eric, you know, First Baptist Church is a unique church. I mean, we have been through the Civil War. We have been through World War I. We have been through World War II. We have been through the Cold War. We've, we've been through almost everything in America's history this church has. And God has been so good to us. And I just want you to know I am encouraged by you, by your spiritual maturity, and the way, that, the way that you handle the challenges that we deal with. And I thank you for that. I'm so proud of you, and I thank you for that, because you, you demonstrate to me, and I think to our community, the godliness of, uh, of this church and Lord. Now then, we have uh, some people who are gonna be going on a mission trip to Egypt. I'm gonna ask them to stand, and uh, you'll be praying for them. So they're going, uh, they're going to Egypt, and there they will uh, be uh, with some other Baptists from uh, around. And, uh, and so you'll be praying for them as they go there. And so I'm going to ask uh, you keep them in mind and all of us stand together and we will pray for them. And uh, I will pray as we are dismissed. Father, thank you for the opportunities that you give to us. Thank you for your sufficiency, your grace, your love, your faithfulness. And Lord, I lift up these who are going to Egypt. Use them to share the good news of Christ. Protect them. Watch over them. Give them opportunities. Give them boldness and courage and wisdom. But Father, I lift them up to you. I pray that souls will be saved as a result of their ministry. Thank you for them and for all of these. In Christ's name I pray.